morning, everyone. That was a good start. Our brother has prayed that you would all have open hearts to receive God's word this morning. I would add to that, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in his sight. So this morning we're in Amos chapter 7. We've studied two-thirds of the book already, the prophecies of chapters 1 and 2, his sermons in chapters 3 through 6. Now in this final section, chapters 7, 8, and 9, we have a series of five visions that the Lord showed to Amos. The first four of those are introduced with a little phrase, Thus the Lord God showed me. Those visions are the vision of the locusts, the vision of fire, the vision of the plumb line, the basket of ripe fruit, and in the final chapter, revelation, retribution, and restoration. The first two visions describe judgments that will not come about, and at the end of the last one, the end of chapter 9, we have a description of the future restoration of Israel, indicating that as much as this book has been about the judgments upon Israel, there is hope. And this morning we're going to take a look at a little section that gets in between the third and fourth vision, a historical parenthesis a little encounter between Amos and the chief priest of Bethel, a fellow by the name of Amaziah. So to get started, we'll begin by reading some verses, verses 1 through 7, the vision of the locusts. This is Amos chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, He formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was a late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. And we'll stop there for the moment. Now this first vision, the vision of the locusts, is a natural plague. And we've seen this even in our day. As recently as uh, just a couple years ago, they had locust swarms in Africa. But to get an idea of what the locusts can do, I'd like to go back one, one book of the Bible, back to Joel chapter 1 for just a minute. And we'll just look at a couple of verses there that have a better description of what a locust plague looks like. 
And he said, The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. What you see here in verse 4 of Joel chapter 1, he references four kinds of locusts. There are actually 80 different kinds of locusts. And if you read verse 7, Joel says, He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. So not only is the fruit gone, the leaves are gone, everything about the vegetation, they've even stripped the bark off the trees. The first ones come through, what they leave, the second ones take, the third and the fourth. Usually in a locust swarm, you see more than one kind. And they eat different parts of the plant. A locust swarm can contain as many as 80 million adult locusts. And in 2020, a swarm of a single square kilometer can eat as much food in a day as do 35,000 adults. One of the current swarms, this was in 2020 in Africa, one of the current swarms were reported to measure up to 40 by 60 kilometers, which gives it the potential to devastate enough food to feed 6% of the population of East Africa each day, or the equivalent of 84 million adults. That is a lot to eat in a day. And this was in 2020 when food shortages were already exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. It makes you wonder if the Lord was trying to tell us something even today. Now the timing of this particular vision in Amos, the timing of the locust swarm, when they came, is also important to note. It says, they came at the beginning of the late crop. Now the cycle then was that in the springtime you would plant, the crop would grow up, the first cutting or mowing would go to the king. That was his tax. And then the second crop would come up, and that would be for the people to cut and to use and to store up for winter. Well, with the timing of this one, what would happen is the king's mowing would take place. Then the locusts would come and destroy whatever was left. So there would be no second crop. The winter stores were already depleted, so you had nothing left, nothing to eat. So that's the vision of the locusts. And we'll talk a little bit more about Amos' prayer in a few minutes. But let's look at the vision of fire 
Now this is opposed to being natural. This is a supernatural plague. It says, a conflict by fire that consumed the great deep and devoured the territory or portion or land. So everything that lived was gone. Now that phrase, the great deep, appears somewhere else in the Bible. I want to go back to Genesis and chapter 7 for just a minute. And I want you to see that phrase here and how it's used. Genesis chapter 7 and verse number 11. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. You see two things going on in this verse. The fountains of the great deep refers to under the earth and the heavens above. So you have here water coming up from below and down from above. And you might wonder, okay, where are we going to get enough water to cover the earth? Obviously God did it. No problem for him. And one of the things I came across in my research... It started me thinking, because one of the Jewish commentators I read on Amos pointed out that the great deep referred to underground rivers or underground water sources. In 2014, scientists found evidence for huge quantities of water trapped 400 miles underneath the crust of the earth. After decades of searching, scientists have discovered that a vast reservoir of water, enough to fill the ocean, world's oceans, three times over, may be trapped hundreds of miles beneath the surface. It's locked up in a mineral called ringwoodite. It's about 400 miles beneath the surface of the earth. You know, we've seen a lot of scientific and archaeological evidence that confirms the Bible. I thought it was interesting. Here's one more thing that would tend to confirm what God says in his word. So back to Amos. In this vision, he says the fire will consume all the water and all the land. Well, if you don't have water and you don't have land, you're not going to last very long. So it would have totally destroyed everything. So let's move on. Let's read the vision of the plumb line. I'll start in verse 7 here. It says, Thus he showed me, Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. 
I will not pass by them any more. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So we see here a wall made with a plumb line. If you don't know what a plumb line is, basically you put a weight on the end of a string, you tie it to something like up here, let the weight take it down, and that's straight up and down. It's uh, Masons use it to run a wall straight up. Plumbers use it to make pipes go straight up and down. Um, and what this is saying here, he says a wall made with a plumb line. Well, if you relate that to the nation of Israel, when God set them apart and gave them the law and set them up, they were his own special people. They were straight and true, like a plumb line. Now he's going to stand and he's going to put the plumb line up against them several hundred years later to see if they are still straight and true. Well, what the plumb line will do after a time with a wall is it will reveal places that have become warped or bowed or crooked or out of line. Maybe the foundation it was built on wasn't quite right. You know, I'm think I thought about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I'm sure they didn't build it that way. They probably built it straight up and down, and then it tilted. Plumb line reveals those places that are no longer straight and true. So as he sets this in the middle of Israel, he sees the areas where they have strayed from the straight and true word of God. So that's the vision of the plumb line. Now Amos, in the first two visions, at the end of them, he saw them and he prayed. Matthew Henry notes it was the business of prophets to pray for those to whom they prophesied and so to show that they did not desire the woeful day. Amos did not want to see Israel destroyed. Now, as you look at the prayer, he says, O Lord, forgive. Well, if forgiveness is the solution, then sin must be the problem. So he establishes at the beginning that they've sinned and they need to be forgiven. He admits this. For he is small. The people of Israel are weakened. Sin and corruption have depleted any strength that they may have. By whom shall Jacob arise? Or by whom shall Jacob stand? There's no one to aid them. They cannot help themselves. There is only one who can help. And it's the one to whom this prayer has been addressed, the Lord God. So what you see here in this prayer, when you break it down like that, sin is the problem. The people are weak and can't help themselves. 
No one else can help them. They need the Lord. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Why did Amos pray about the first two visions? But then when he got to the plumb line, he didn't pray about that one. Why would that be? Well, the locust plague would have destroyed Israel entirely. The fire would have destroyed the land and the water, and there would have been no Israel left. But we know from other scripture that God always has a remnant. When Elijah escaped from Jezebel and thought he was the only one left that was true to God, God told him, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. It's First Kings 19.18. In Genesis chapter 12, God made a covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you think about that, God is always true to his word. He makes this statement without condition that he will do that. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. That can't happen if he wipes out Israel or allows Israel to be destroyed. It can't happen. God always has a remnant. In Exodus chapter 32, we see Moses praying the same sort of prayer that Amos did, interceding for his people. He says, Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak And say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Moses prays, even cites the covenant that we just read. Now in my, I've read from the New King James Version, it uses the word relent. Here in Exodus, back in Amos, it says God relented. The old King James uses the word repent. And I find that interesting because I think what it helps us understand is it helps us to understand the meaning of the word repent more clearly. We think of it always in association with sin. We repent of our sins. I repented of my sins and won the victory, the hymn writer says. But really what that word means is to change directions. 
to change your ways. And this is why in the Old King James, when you read, the Lord repented concerning this, it means that God changed the way he was going to go. So the question becomes, can prayer cause God to change his mind? And I believe the answer in a word is no. God doesn't change his mind. But God always acts in accordance with his attributes. They always work together to glorify his name. God is unchangeable or immutable, if you prefer the big fancy word. He cannot act in a manner contrary to that which he has already revealed or promised. So you go back to that promise we read in Genesis. God has to keep that promise because God doesn't change. He is also holy. He cannot tolerate sin in any way, shape, or form. It must be judged. No matter how much you pray, God must still judge sin. But also, grace and mercy are attributes of God. He wants you to repent of your sins, to change your direction, and look toward him so he can forgive and extend that grace and mercy. That's what he desires here in Amos. God himself wants to extend to them grace and mercy. But they have to heed his call to repentance too. You see, in the New Testament, we read, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but in long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3.9 God did not change his mind because of what Amos prayed. He knew all along what he would do. But Amos was allowed the privilege of participating in the work that God would do at this point. You see, God would not, and he knew all along that he would not do these first two things because they would totally destroy Israel, and that would not be consistent with who he is. Another thing that Amos did in his prayer was to pray according to God's will. In New Testament terms, pray in the name of Jesus. I know one of the things that a lot of us do, myself included, we pray, and at the end of our prayer, we always say something like, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray, amen. Well, that's kind of nice, but it's not really what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. You see, in the New Testament, we have a promise that says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That's our Lord Jesus speaking, John 14, 13. 
And John will clarify that in his first epistle a little bit. He will put it this way. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. So you see, it becomes a question of praying according to God's will. In our case, in our text here, because God needed to preserve a remnant of Israel, at least a remnant, then Amos's prayer saying, you know, please don't do this, was according to God's will. And God granted it. But now we come to the third vision, the plumb line. Why didn't Amos pray about that one? The plumb line, while it shows the places where Israel need to be judged, it reveals along with those places that are crooked, those places that are straight. It's a discriminating kind of judgment, you see. He said he's going to set the plumb line in the midst of his people. And then he gives specific things that he's going to do. The high places are desolate. The sanctuaries are laid waste. The sword against the house of Jeroboam. This is a discriminating judgment. God passed over his people in Egypt at the Passover. But this time he says, I will not pass by them anymore. And he addresses specific things. He says, I will destroy the high places. That's the false religious system that's been set up in Israel. Therefore, the king, this is Jeroboam the first, not the Jeroboam whose king that Amos is prophesying to. But the first Jeroboam asked advice, made two calves of gold and said to the people, Is it too much for you to go up to Jerusalem? Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one up in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. That's from 1 Kings. Those are the places of pagan worship that God says he's going to destroy. You remember back in Exodus, we already read when Moses interceded for the people. It was because they had made this golden calf and said, this is our God who brought us up out of Egypt. And God was not pleased. He's not pleased with them worshiping golden calves at Dan and Bethel either. And he says, the holy places shall be laid waste. The high places desolate, the sanctuaries laid waste. He's going to destroy those places where he has not put his name, where he does not worship. He has placed his holy name on the city of Jerusalem. You see, in First Kings he said this, And to Solomon's son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me 
in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself, to put my name there. So God says there's one place. I put my name there. That's where I want my name, and I'll destroy the other places. He's also going to destroy their political system, the system that Jeroboam has set up. He says, I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. So he destroys the religious and the political system. And that is the discriminating judgment that he pronounces. But now we go on and we read this little historical parenthesis, this encounter that Amos has with Amaziah the priest of Bethel. I'll begin reading in verse 10 and go to the end. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, there eat bread and there prophesy. But never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the royal residence. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a herdsman and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away from his own land. This is one of my favorite parts of, of studying this, which is the, the encounter here and how Amos reacts to Amaziah. I mean, here you have this, this priest who is in authority, who supposedly everybody looks up to. He's, He's one of the ruling class here. And here comes little old Amos, the herdsman, the fig picker, you know, and he spouts off about all this judgment stuff. And Amaziah challenges him. Now you would think when one of the rulers challenges him that he would just kind of back down, but that's not the way it works. He doesn't. Amaziah addresses him as a seer or a prophet. So Amaziah is acknowledging that Amos has some kind of a message, but he doesn't want to hear it. He says, you go back to Judah, get out of Bethel, go be somebody else's problem, go challenge somebody else's authority, quit picking on me. The phrase, eat bread and prophesy. What he's accusing Amos of 
as being a paid or hired prophet sent to make trouble. We've heard about that in the news lately, too. Some of these protesters who um, have been accused of being paid to go and make trouble. Amaziah decides that Amos has no place at the king's altar or in the king's palace. He's an outsider. But really, you know, you have a king, but is he really a king of Israel? I mean, he's not of the line of David. True, God has has kind of set up the divided kingdom and he's made him a king over here, but... But anyway, he's not supposed to be in Bethel or anywhere near the king's palace. Really, when you get right down to it, Amaziah is the one who doesn't have any authority. His authority comes from a king who's not really a king. He's a hired prophet, a hired priest. He's not of the tribe of Levi. God didn't make him a priest. The king did. Amos, on the other hand, is the real deal. His authority comes from the Lord himself. So many times, religious leaders did not recognize the prophets. They didn't recognize the Lord Jesus. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. John chapter 1 tells us. Speaking the truth of the gospel today can get you canceled if you're lucky, killed if you're not. But then we have Amos's response. Like I said, he did not turn tail and run. But the first thing he says is, I was no prophet and I was a son of a prophet. No formal training. What does that remind you of? Didn't they accuse the apostles? They wondered why the apostles knew so much when they had no formal training? Amos says, no, no formal training. I'm not a descendant of anybody that should make me a prophet. But he says, I just minded my own business. Tending a flock, growing these sycamore figs. By the way, those aren't even the good figs. They're kind of the lower class figs. Amos was employed gainfully. He was not seeking a ministry. So very similar to the apostles. They were gainfully employed. They were working, mending their nets. In the case of Matthew, collecting taxes, they were just going about their business. And the Lord came along and said, follow me. Amos was minding his own business. And the Lord called him and told him to go to Bethel and prophesy against the northern kingdom. Also, Amos in verse 17 goes, Thus says the Lord, The words that he spoke were not his words. They were the Lord's words. The words given to him. 
<coughs> Amos has his authority, not from a king, but from Jehovah himself. Verse 16. He said, you say, do not prophesy against Israel, do not spout against the house of Isaac. He's trying to silence the prophet. And the attempts to silence prophets continued throughout the Old Testament and again in the New. (coughs) The rulers on the council told Peter and John not to speak in the name of Jesus. And yet they answered, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So in response to Amaziah's challenge, Amos goes, thus says the Lord, so it doesn't come from Amos, it comes from the Lord, four pronouncements or judgments on Amaziah. He will be disgraced. His wife becomes a harlot. If he dismayed, his sons and daughters are going to be slain and the house of Amaziah will no longer be in Israel. He will be dispossessed. His land will be divided up and lost. And he will be defiled. He will not die in Israel, but in a defiled, faraway land. And the last thing in this chapter, in Israel, the northern kingdom shall surely be led away captive. So, we have this chapter, this prophecy, the visions, the encounter with Amaziah. What does this mean for you and me? Is this just some ancient word that we can read and pick apart? Or is there something here that we can learn to do? I'm going to suggest a couple of things. One thing we can do is to speak the truth Sound the alarm. Call sin, sin. Use that little three-letter word. That's what God calls it. It's what we should call it. Alternate lifestyles are not alternate lifestyles. They're sin. Alcoholism, gambling addiction, drug addiction, things of that nature. They're not diseases to be treated. They're sin. And they require Jesus Christ. Call it that way. Remember that our silence is equivalent to approval. If we are confronted with these things and we don't say anything, that's tacit approval. And the Bible has something to say about that. In Romans chapter 1, you read, Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that's you and me. We've read this Bible. We know what it says. That those who practice such things are deserving of death. That's talking about those who do the sinful things. And there's a whole laundry list of them in Romans chapter 1. You can go back and read it. But then it says, we know the righteous judgments 
not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You don't want to fall into that category. You don't want to be doing them, and you don't want to be approving them. Remember, your silence is approval. Our prosperity breeds complacency. We in the U.S. have a very high standard of living. Some say it's the highest standard of living the world has ever seen. It's very easy to rest in our comfort zone, to not do anything at all about the issue of sin. But let's not forget where our prosperity comes from. And as we've been reading, as we've been studying Amos, let's not forget who can take it away in a heartbeat. We have been given much. We gather here twice a week. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We listen to the Word expounded. We encourage and equip one another. We all cultivate our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible says, from everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. We have much more than many people in the world in terms of what we know about the Lord Jesus Christ and about the Bible and about God's righteousness. The more we know, the more will be required of us. But lastly, there is hope. The first two visions we read would have totally destroyed Israel, but God repented of those things and did not do them. He judged them righteously. He left a remnant. But there is hope. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this word that you have given us, for the time that we've had to look into it, to study it. Thank you, Father, for each one here. We pray that you would uphold, equip, and encourage each one of us to go out into the world to bear the good news, the gospel that Jesus Christ has come, that he has died and risen from the dead and is seated at your right hand making intercession for us. We give you thanks and praise for that. We pray for those who would desire to be with us today and for one reason or another cannot. We pray that you would encourage them. Pray that those who are struggling with infirmities would be comforted and relieved. We do give you thanks for the food that's been prepared downstairs. We ask you to bless it to our use and us to your service. 
We pray all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.